I need <laughs> that in my life instead no, it's of just, a uh, This is just a green screen that I bought. Uh, the, the, fairly inexpensive, and I can just throw anything up there. It's great. See, there you go. I need that. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. I have a yeah, window. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a nice addition because we have episodes whenever we're talking about it. Well, actually, when Joe talked about Philadelphia, Joe, remember what episode was that? Do you remember? Well, it was early in October because we did it for Dorktober, so mm. it would have been somewhere in the early teens, I think. Okay, so we he wouldn't have had the green screen by then, but we were doing a whole thing with DC Future State, and every week he okay. has an issue as his background, so as opposed to yeah. me with the clock. So you don't <laughs> just have that anytime, like that Philadelphia background. I can't like, if no you matter want me who to, you're I can... talking to. <laughs> you just have Philadelphia, like for a time into the future, it'll just be Philadelphia. Yeah, just let me believe that. Permanently. <laughs> yeah, just let me believe. Just say yes, and then you know. You got I'll it. <laughs> I won't check. So. Oh man, I kind of want to just leave this there and, and start at that point. I mean, the, the voice you guys are hearing right now—you don't—you already know that that's Rodney Barnes, the writer of Philadelphia, who Joe you've wanted to have on since we started talking about getting guests on the show. Yes. And uh, I know you, and you, and you set this whole thing up. So uh, I know you're really excited about talking to him today. I am. I, I started. I, I got on Philadelphia early uh, when it, I think maybe issue two or three had uh, come out, and someone said, "You know, you got you got to go read this." And so I ate it up. And Rodney, I will. I it's a, it's a running joke on the show. I am a giant scaredy cat. Uh oh. <laughs> and true. so like like horror movies, things like that, I just won't watch. But there's something about horror books uh, yeah. that I love, and and Philadelphia is one that just. It, it sits with me, and I, I've talked about it many times on the show. It's it, the, the story is fantastic, and the art is yes. uh, it's, it's just Jason oh, it's is, it's next yeah. level. Yeah, Jason is the man. I mean, uh, his ability to um, it, it's something he does with tone that even when I don't have like anything incredibly exciting happening in a scene, he can still set a degree of tension within a scene that um, isn't there in the script. You know, he can direct it such to the degree that um, it makes it feel a lot more ominous than my ability to make it feel. So it's a bust. Don't make you sell yourself short now. Come on now. I respect <laughs> modesty, but let's be real here. Jason I, might be listening to this, so I have to make sure I keep him around. You know, Todd could take him away at any moment and he could be back on a spawn, you know. Mm. So I got to make sure that, I, you know, fluff him a little. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, well, to help you fluff him, I, I, as much as I love Spawn and loved his work on Spawn, I feel like he was really able to shine here because this is, I mean, there's you got a lot going on in Philadelphia. You don't need me to tell you that, but it gets so damn violent in this, and it just like it gets very primal throughout yes. the, the majority yeah. of it. And I think that's where like he's he's able to do a, like take the two three steps that he can't necessarily take with Spawn. Yeah, and if you look at the rhythm of how the violence works, you know, there's one scene where you'll have Tevin hugging his grandmother very lovingly, and then the next scene you'll have somebody ripping off a head. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that's to kind of lull you into, uh, like horror movies do. You know, when you hear the yeah. music, you know, sometimes in the silence you know that something bad's about to happen, so... And what made him the, the artist that you wanted to work with? I'm, I'm assuming he was your first choice. We're going to. Yeah. Well, what happened? How Jason and I got together. Uh, we were hired to do. Uh, they're these guys that do these big art books uh, from time to time. And they were doing a profile on Jason. And somehow they asked me to interview Jason. I have no idea why. And um, 
we only live a mile away from each other. So we would meet at a restaurant and uh, we sort of hit it off. And um, we kept doing it like week after week, well, month, every couple of weeks we would meet and, and talk. And um, eventually we got around after I broke into comics and I did my stuff with Marvel. I started, you know, fancying the idea of doing an independent book. So Jason being who Jason is and me loving his work. And if you ever break into his home, it's like an art gallery. I mean, Jason is a fine artist as much as he is an illustrator of uh, comic books. So um, I had an idea that I thought fit the tone of what Jason did. And the problem is up until that point, I had pitched him a bunch of ideas and he had pitched me some ideas and we both hated each other's ideas. <laughs> and one night, you know, he's drinking because because he loves the whiskey. And uh, not that he's not an alcoholic. He just right. likes a good <laughs> stiff drink. So I don't want because yeah. sometimes he says, dude, you make me sound like an alcoholic. You're not an alcoholic. <laughs> I wish he were an alcoholic. That would make it easy. And um, so he's sipping his drink and I'm pitching. And I see his head like he's considering it. And usually it's like you see like a dismissive and he picks up the sandwich and, you know, whatever I've had to say, it just has kind of been flushed out of his mind. And um, he stayed with this one. And uh, the next day he called me and he said, uh, that thing you you pitched me, you, you have it written down? I said, no, it's just it's in my head and a lot of different pieces. He said, you know, I think we could team up on that one. And. Then we had another dinner, and then he um, he asked me again like I didn't pitch him before. So in a log line, I said, it's uh, Hamilton meets Dracula meets Samson and Son. And said, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And then I had the pages ready, and he took it to Image, and uh, the rest is history. Oh, so. that's that's tremendous. So so reading Philadelphia, I mean, you did the, the character, you've got a wide, you know, array of characters. Was there or is there a, a character that you enjoy writing the most? And this has there been a backstory uh, that was your favorite to write? Because I'll, I'll tell you, mine, mine is Toppy. I, you yeah. know, yeah, Deadwood. Yeah. Yeah. I, I dig Toppy a lot. I wanted to give each one. Philadelphia is about trauma and how we don't. You know, in adulthood, sometimes if you've ever, if you're aware of how therapy works, or you've ever been in therapy, you realize that a lot of the seeds that were sown in childhood tend to blossom in adulthood, and sometimes you're not aware of it, and um, they tend to uh, develop habits along the way. Those things that lie underneath, whether it's anger or rage or insecurity or narcissism or whatever. And I wanted to give each vampire that was part of Adams's little clique something unique, some period of history that was unique to them to where they just came upon Adams like opportunity. But they weren't just all like in most vampire movies, vampires are in Transylvania. So the people in Transylvania will become vampires and they will follow Dracula around. And that's mm -hmm. it. And here, I wanted history to play a role into that, but I wanted a unique entry point to each vampire and where they came from. So loving Westerns and loving the show Deadwood, um, it was like, okay, how can I bring an air of sophistication <laughs> to Toppy's background that was different than what you would expect? And um, so that's where it came from for him. My, my favorite character, I think, is Seesaw because you don't, necessarily get a character that comes from the world that he comes from going to the places that he goes to and the places he's about to go to um 
you typically people I think are judged oftentimes by um, geography, you know, where they're positioned in the world. And you sort of judge them not only as human beings, but you place limitations on them as well uh, by that is by the boundaries that you set for them and how they're perceived. And just being able to take Seesaw to heaven, to hell, to purgatory, um, and to have him talking to demons, but he still sounds like he's from Philly. Yeah. Um, that's sort of fun for me to give that character as much perspective and depth as I try to give him. And one thing that um, you know, you talk about the the development of of him as a character, and I, what we saw with John Adams in the first arc, and now we see with his wife in the second arc. Of course, the the plan for the vampires is developed quite a bit. And I'm curious, there was a, a specific page in uh, the ninth issue, I believe it was, it was Abigail and it was Brittany kind of talking about the plans and how things were changing. And for me, where you're talking, so, you're talking about trauma, of course, is the main thing. But part of all this is too, is the, the, the system, racism in America, all these things. And we go from John Adams, who I get the impression he's trying to replace a broken system with another system that is that appears to be flawed, leads mm -hmm. to his, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, without spoiling things for people. And mm -hmm. then we have Abigail Adams, who wants to, who's taking things in an entirely different direction. And I'm curious with like that, when you wrote that page, to me, it was like the one that stuck with me most through the first 12 issues. I'm curious if that one was when you were really trying to get a, a message across um, in that conversation with Brittany. I wanted to accomplish a couple of things. Um, Abigail didn't get a whole lot of uh, time on screen, for lack of a better way of saying it, in the first arc of the story. She was kind of walking with uh, John Adams, and John was kind of the heavy. And I think her frustration, um, not just in the story that I'm telling, but in history of the story that I'm telling, um, in history, she was known as the smart one. You know, she they had children and all of their children went on to be prominent, you know, one to become a president as well. And um, two terms. She, yes. And, and whereas John had one. And it's like um, she never got a lot of credit. And I thought that that spoke to patriarchy. And I wanted her to be the embodiment, the living embodiment of or the undead embodiment of um, the frustration that must have come with that. Um, and so when she's talking to Brittany, she's sort of able to speak for herself in a way that she's never had before because John isn't there to sort of say, hey, but, you know, and to sort of mansplain where um, we should go or what we should do. Or even to have, even if he's doing it in the best of ways, this is freedom for her. And, and she's talking to another girl slash she's 200 years old. So psychologically, you know, I think she's a woman as well. They're able to, you know, sort of um, be free for the first time and have the shackles taken off and to be able to, to move forward in a way that they want to move forward. So I thought that that was a pivotal moment as well and being able to set a different tone um, for the book going forward. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's been a lot of you know great themes and 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 the tone has been it's been it's been very powerful throughout the you know the, the first twelve issues of this book. What do you make of the response that you've gotten from readers um, about Philadelphia? Because from what I see on Twitter and, and my own response, it's been it's been very powerful. You've you've really sort of hit on something here. I appreciate that. It's weird because my first book, Falcon, was kind of like eh, and some people hated it. And I never, I, I, you guys familiar with Axel Alonso? that used to be at Marvel. Yes. 
Mm -hmm. So Axel was one of the folks who hired me to do Falcon. And before I'd done anything, before I put pen to paper, uh, I met him at a convention at San Diego at Comic-Con. And uh, he said, uh, oh, Rodney Barnes, how you doing? It's good to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And he said, prepare to be hated. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he said, uh, you'll, you'll find out. And so I found out. And um, <laughs> three issues in. And there was this one guy on Twitter. And he would take pictures of dialogue that he hated and post them and make comments about them. And uh, I remember being in a movie, I think it was The Post with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep one night. And my phone kept dinging. And it was Twitter. And it was this guy. And I had never experienced anything like that before because as a TV writer, people can say they hate your TV show, but very rarely do they attribute it to you. So um, with Philadelphia, it being probably the most personal thing that I've ever done in any medium, in any form, I was prepared for hatred. I was prepared to just like, I'll get rid of Twitter. I'll get rid of any way for people to tell me what they think. And I'll be free. I could just write this thing and Jason will hear it all. He's way more popular and sexy than I am. And uh, he can take it, you know, because he's got whiskey. Um, <laughs> and pizza doesn't do the have the same effect. You know, it dulls you to sleep, whereas you know, oh, liquor yeah. can make you bold at times. Mm. So uh, my ability to uh, to take praise isn't, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm honored. I, I'm grateful. Um, it's a great feeling, and it's also done another thing with, uh, it's made me feel connected to the community in a different kind of way, the comics community, which even though, you know, that guy was standing that took the pictures, um, it's a great bunch of folks, and it takes me back to a period of time when I loved comics as a kid, and we didn't have social media or any way, you only had the kids in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It sort of brings um, a degree of community together. It makes me feel like I'm part of something that um really until the rest of my life, you know, I'll be able to be a part of. So it's a dope feeling. So with, with your, your sort of long-standing, you know, uh, relationship with comics, taking you back to uh, when you were a kid, is, is vampires always something that you've been fascinated with and, 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 and loved reading about or writing or, or watching? Or how did that sort of come about for you? Horror comics and horror in general. Um, I was a big big fan of the Universal Monsters uh, creature feature stuff that used to come on late at night as a little kid. And then later in life, um, basically every era has its own sort of um, its stamp on horror. Like in the 70s, you had George Romero and Wes Craven and, and those guys and the Hammer films kind of snuck in there in the 80s as well, still kept going with David Cronenberg and different folks. Um, and I, I grew up with it, but I never really saw my culture sort of prominently positioned in there. It's, it's like if you had one that came from a story that had people of color in it, it typically took on, it had this weight that it had to have with um, the cultural stuff, the sociological stuff. And it wasn't just fun. It wasn't just a story about vampires. It wasn't just a story about zombies or whatever. It had to have this other thing that was a part of it. Mm. And some people did it better than others. And the ones that did it well, I applaud um, yeah, I applaud anybody who's got the guts to, to do this stuff. But um, after Jordan Peele sort of snuck through and, and did Get Out and uh, Us, I went back to my love in the comic realm of House of Mystery and um, 
the Bernie Wrights and stuff and uh, Mike Plug and Werewolf by Night and just stuff that I'd loved throughout time. And I was like, okay, how can I update an idea about vampires? Because certainly vampires, um, it's not like we haven't had more than a couple vampire <laughs> stories over time. Um, since this was a story about history and as vampires are immortal and in Anne Rice's books, I thought she did it well where vampires were touched by history. And my thing was, why not just do a deep dive and use history as sort of a um, an engine to drive the story to where you see current day events uh, with people who have, well, vampires who have perspective from the beginning of America and put the two together. And that would make a conversation, if I could execute it well enough, that I thought would be really, really interesting. Um, so that was sort of how it all came to be. I mean, and you have executed well integrating, I mean, making the historical characters a focal point in this story. And I'm curious, we, we've talked about Die on here by Kieran Gillen, who's also from Image Comics. Um, we really enjoy that book as well. And there are historical uh, figures brought in, writers from the past and everything. And I'm curious, is there anything when you're trying to do that, integrate these characters that like an obstacle that you didn't foresee that you kind of have to get through? Um, just my respect for who the character was. Um, I, I try to do as much research as I can on who that person was. And I try to go to true, true, true. And then I make a bridge into fantasy. Um, I don't like you see some adaptations where you're just kind of pilfering the name and the image of who the historical character is. Almost like it's a cool idea. What if we were to take George Washington and throw him George Washington mouse hunter and, you know, he's trying to catch <laughs> mice around the house. Um and I wanted it to be more from an intrinsic place of how I imagine my version of this historical character to be more so than just an extrinsic place to where I'm sort of just um, co-opting the name for my own selfish purposes. Um, John Adams, I remember, I'm a big fan of the play Hamilton. Um, and I remember the first time I saw it and they were making fun of John Adams. And I was this idea idea was sort of in my head uh, already about Philadelphia. I was like, what if John Adams was in the audience? What if John Adams was able to sort of uh, see how he was being made fun of, whereas you have some of his contemporaries that have been celebrated, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, so on and so forth are kind of the rock stars of, you know, the founding fathers, whereas John mm -hmm. is sort of an afterthought. You know, he doesn't get a whole lot of shine. Even Alexander Hamilton is getting more love than John Adams got. And so, I wanted to play that into the idea of my John Adams, where, you know, part of it is ego. Part of it is what you said up top with a better form of democracy. But another thing is ego and wanting to, you know, I don't have any competition anymore. It's just me. I can make America great in the image that I want to make it great in. And so that's sort of a driving force, too. And oftentimes when you're driven by ego or narcissism, you're not looking at any of the ancillary information that's sort of swirling around your head at that time. So um, he's blind to a lot of things. He's blind to a degree of contempt, I think, that his wife has for him, um, even though she loves him clearly. Um, he's blind to the empathy that's necessary to have for the people that he's turning, you know, because what I thought, what I'm trying to bring to my vampires is that you don't, you don't, there's a part of what you were as a human being that follows you into this new vampire existence. You don't completely let it go. 
And whatever that was, whether it was love in the case of Seesaw for his grandmother, whether that's contempt, whether that's hatred, anger, like in Toppy's case, um, the shadow of that, the echo of that still kind of sticks with you when you become a vampire and it sort of becomes part of your identity. And um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's been, that's been one of my favorite things because a lot of these characters, I mean, they're vicious. I mean, you, you look at Abigail and she's she might be the most vicious of them all. But when I mentioned earlier about Toppy, you know, I, I sympathize with Toppy, right? I mean, he he, mm -hmm. he gets as vicious as it gets, but you, when you read about his backstory and what happened, like, oh, I, I, I kind of get it, you know? I, I, I see where that, where that comes from. He takes from. a lot of losses, though. He does. <laughs> that Toppy takes a lot of losses, though. He takes – he doesn't he does mm. just dish it up. That's all right. of them. No, God, he may take it worse than anybody. pretty bad, so, you know, I'm a little <laughs> empathetic for Toppy as well. Yeah. What about but, uh, well, yeah, real quick before you go, Joe? I I had a question about um Jupiter. Is he actually gonna get? Because he's not. His name's not Jupiter. Like, does he actually get another name at any point down the line? I say his name. I say his name from history in the book. Jupiter's a real person. Uh, he's based on a real person. Like he and Thomas Jefferson had that relationship. That really? was his. That that came from research that um. There was a real Jupiter. I think his name was Evans. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Um, okay. Well, geez, he's a real. He, he's a real. He was his playmate. He actually, when um, I believe. Please don't. If I'm wrong, don't don't hate me. Um, <laughs> when Jefferson went to college and didn't have any money, Jupiter gave him money for his books. Uh, in real life, I think it was William and Mary, and. Um, Mm -hmm. Jupiter was someone who was next to Jefferson for a good portion of his life. Real, I didn't know that. Wow, because his I, name was Jupiter. His nickname okay, was Jupiter. Because in the in the book, because I believe you wrote like he, he says during his um, narration mm -hmm. in Town of the Story, he says my name was never Jupiter. And that yes. I mean, I, I, that character for me so far, I've like I've his story has been most compelling to me. Yeah, he um I actually came upon him when I was in high school, I think. I had to do a report on Thomas Jefferson and um there was this guy and he was there and he was mentioned and then we went on with Thomas Jefferson. And it always stuck with me with, you know, I wonder how I wonder what he was going through, what he was feeling at that time. So, you know, got an opportunity to give him some semblance of life, but uh Jupiter's still around. You know, he's not gone. Mm -hmm. He's still mm -hmm. there. Abigail didn't kill him. She did a toppy to him where she did a job <laughs> oh, yeah. on him. Oh, you know, yeah. she, she did a thing to him, but he's still he's still slumping around Philly doing something. I'm excited <laughs> for that. I'm excited to see what he does next. Yeah. Uh, so so getting getting ready, you know, we're, we're talking about your audience, just sort of you know, looking back at everything, you've 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 accomplished quite a bit throughout your career, especially you know, in Hollywood and on the TV side of things, whether it's you know, the Wu Tang uh show you've done, uh Boondocks, but you also did some work on on Blade and, and, and Green Mile. What was it that really transitioned you from your work in Hollywood to wanting to do comics? I always wanted to do comics. When um when I lived, I'm from Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, my Comic-Con wasn't San Diego. It wasn't San Diego. It was at the Javits Center. It was the New York Comic-Con, uh, which was far different than what we have today. And so I would catch the bus from Maryland with my really horrible little comic book scripts and hope that I could find the right person to talk to to one day give me a shot writing comic books. 
I was going to be the gym shooter. I was going to be the team guy that somebody saw and gave an opportunity. It never happened, uh, obviously. And um, later on, I was able to, um, when I when I got hired to do Marvel's Runaways, um, I talked to Marvel Television and I told them I really wanted to take a crack at writing comics. And they liked what I was doing on the show and reached out to Marvel Publishing and they gave me a shot doing Falcon. That was sort of the beginning. I got Falcon and Lando um, really within the same week. Um, and That's um, a good week. Those are my, yeah. yeah, it was. And those were my first two assignments. And without them, I look at them as like boot camp. You know, I was able to um, sort of uh, lay a foundation for what to do, what not to do. Uh, my relationship with comics, it's sort of, there's a period as a kid when you when I was deeply into comics, but as a fan. And then I started to read them differently uh, during the Neil Gaiman, my Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore phase, uh, Swamp mm. Thing and Sandman and all of that stuff. It was almost like literature. And I was a student of it in a, and more so than just a fan. And then there was a period where life kind of took over and I had made a separation I'm working, I have kids, you know, television. And then hopping back into comics, I was still kind of connected to my last place in comics. And I was writing from a very wordy place. I was writing from, you know, comics are different now. The, mm -hmm. the words are sparse and they complement the art and you have to do a lot with a little. Some writers have, you know, the big guys. I'm not a big, I'm literally a big guy, but in comics, I'm still <laughs> climbing up the ladder. And, um, so developing a tone for this generation of readers and um, acclimating myself to what the culture of comics now took a minute. And, you know, thank God Marvel gave me an opportunity and I was able to sort of bridge that gap between where I was and where I needed to be. So working on Blade and being a fan of horror books and, and vampires, is, is Blade a character that you've always sort of like – you know, I don't want to say identified with, but you know, gravitated towards and 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 uh, sort of inspired you maybe to want to do Philadelphia. Um, no, I wish it. <clears throat> I wish it was that current. I love Blade, and um, it was a whole lot of fun working on the first Blade movie. Um, for me, it goes back a lot further. Uh, I was a big fan of the Hammer films. I was a big fan of Salem's Lot. I was a big fan of a show neither of you guys have seen called Cole Shack, the Night Stalker. Um, and, you know, it was Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. Um, mm -hmm. I just had vampires on the brain for a long time. And it was something, Blackula, my mother, uh, my mother took me to see Blackula and Scream, Blackula, Scream in a double feature. And um, I think it was 1978, 1979, someplace in there. And, um, I had never seen, A, the reaction from the audience, which you can imagine. It was a lot of people who looked like me. And I had never seen that presentation before of a vampire in that way that was sort of, you know, he, he was um, uh, he was cool. He was suave, kind of like what Bella Lugosi and Frank Langella and some of the old Christopher Lee uh, had been when they were vampires. But he was still kind of in a neighborhood, you know, doing a thing with a cape and a cane. And he was, you know, it was a thing. And I was like, okay, if I could tell my version of what vampires in a certain urban setting would look like that happened to look like me and came or more closely associated with my culture, how would I do it? And it 
it really required me. Um, whereas Blackula again was an extrinsic phenomenon. It's in his name, you know, he's Blackula, you know, so his, the way he looks is already part of his name. Uh, and whereas Dracula is just Dracula, you know, he's just, you know, uh, who he is. And it's not so much synonymous with his ethnicity. He's just a guy from Transylvania who, you know, Vlad the Impaler and all of that stuff. Right. So my thing was, how can I take the way the world works and the math of today's world drop a vampire into it and see what happens. You know, what would he want? What what would what would that species want if they were able to still hold on to some degree of something other than just a desire for blood? Yeah, and it's I mean it's taken quite a few turns along the way and and we're Joe and I are more than ready for this third arc to get going. I can't wait. Um with the with the the two main characters, the two well, two of the, the three sisters. good yeah. guys, yes, the Sanksters. Um, yeah. When it came to coming up with those characters, and uh, what what led to their development, is that something that you pulled from your life um, or from somebody oh, you know? Very much so. Um, I didn't grow up with my father. I actually lived with him when I was seventeen years old, but I really didn't know him very much as a kid, and we struggled to figure one another out. And because I didn't have a whole lot of dad training, when I had a son, we sort of struggled too. It was like extremes. There would be really, really good times and really, really problematic times. And much of it was due to my ignorance in raising a child, certainly a son. And <clears throat> whereas I was never really able to um, create that bridge with my father and I, my son and I got closer as I became more comfortable with myself and more comfortable with the idea of being a father. So I sort of took the math of my and my father's struggles and my and my son's struggles and sort of crammed them into two guys that are trying to um, work out their stuff. And at the core, the person that kept them together was uh, Sanctuary's wife and Jimmy's mother. She was sort of the referee. So if you take her out of the equation, you leave these guys to it, um, you know, mm -hmm. that's sort of what the story is. Okay. And and I, we've, Joe and I have been wondering too, for a little bit, like we know, I know you have, uh, is, I believe it's with HBO that you have plans for um, things that make white people uncomfortable. Right? Is it with HBO? HBO, Matt, I'm looking at my board. I'm not looking away from you. Um, <laughs> things that make white people uncomfortable is at HBO Max. Uh, it's set up there now. Okay. So do you have, is there any plans in the works about a Philadelphia show down the line? Too? Well, um, it's been optioned. There's a script. Um, okay. I, uh, uh, it was just approved the other day. So we're attaching directors and stuff now. Um, and my deal is with HBO. So they would have to be the first uh, place that you send it to. Um, okay. So, and it's written in such a way, and it was actually designed in such a way to be TV friendly, uh, because that's what I do. Um, so I think from a character place, I think from a place of how would this whole thing play out um, if it were 13 episodes or something like that. Um, gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. Because with HBO, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer to, to yeah. go over there. Because with the violence, you don't want to – like, when you say TV-friendly, I was like, oh, he's not talking about the violence, right? Because we need that in this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. This is not 8 o'clock, um, you know, CBS, um, you know, right after the news comes on or Big Bang Theory, all of a sudden, <laughs> Toppy ripping a head off. This isn't, this isn't that. 
And I think the violence is necessary because what, the idea of the violence wasn't just to be violent. It was more about anger and, yeah. you know, anger from, I look at a lot of stuff that's happening in inner cities now where you'll see eight people died last night or three people died. It's sort of, it's sort of clean. You don't really see human beings behind that. You, you just, you hear a thing and you go, oh, that, that's horrible. And you go on with your day. And I wanted since we're in an environment where there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of um, death that I think comes from desperation, from people who are hurt, who are in pain, who don't have any sense of hope or infrastructure. Um, oftentimes they're young, and I think mass incarceration has played into a role into that lack of feeling nurturing, nurtured or um, safe. You know, mm -hmm. so and you add guns to that equation and street capitalism, drugs, you know, various types of crime. You've just got a petri dish for violence. So if you're going to add this other element to that, it's got to be more visceral in the way that it manifests itself just to be able to compete. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see a when you see a lion attack a gazelle, it's not thinking about what the gazelle feels or how this looks to the people in the safari in the safari jeep that are riding by. It wants its dinner, you know, it mm -hmm. wants what it wants. And so the the violence has to sort of be that. It's it sort of, um, if you're ripping the, um, the Band-Aid off of a wound and you're seeing the wound for what it really is because the Band-Aid covers it, um, you know, oftentimes it's an ugly scar, it's an ugly wound. And I wanted the violence in this to sort of reflect um, the real pain that people feel and the reality of, you know, this other genre element that I'm adding to it. And, and as much as I know you guys talked about Toppy and how you, you guys empathize with him, and I, I do as well, but I, you know, someone who doesn't have their own family yet, it's a little bit different for me. Whereas that's why Jupiter for me was a character who stood out so much because when you talk about the violence, his mm -hmm. is just so, his is unrelenting as much as anybody else's. I mean, like Abigail, yeah, there's something behind it. She's got her plan at hand or whatever. But with him, it's just someone who seems to have dealt with so much pain throughout mm -hmm. their entire existence. And now he's finally like, fuck it. I'm just going to let it all out. Yeah. And, and Abigail, you know, the diabolical part of Abigail was she was able to harness it and make him a weapon. Mm -hmm. uh, but to your point, I think with Jupiter, his ability to um, hone it in and make it very specific, you know, almost like an attack dog in a way that um, I feel this pain. I feel this pain. I'm going to walk through life. I have this halo on. But eventually when I take it off, all hell is going to break loose. And I think um, I wanted him to be the voice of trauma over the centuries. He's the he's the historical connection to anger and pain in a very um, concentrated dose. You know, I, I want to end to give voice to it as well. He's not just killing. He's telling you along the way how he feels about the killing and the perspective that's connected to it. Um, more often than not, we don't get that when we see folks uh, dying in the street today. We just see the death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've got uh, a couple of new titles coming out uh, this spring, Rodney, uh, through mm -hmm. Image, is there is there anything you can sort of tell us about that, and and also sort of what led to you know the creation of uh, Zombie Love Studios? Uh, well, you know, one of the titles, um, uh, Anita Hawes' Nightmare Blog, um, is connected to the Philadelphia Universe, it's oh. a spinoff of uh, 
Philadelphia, so to speak. Um, someone that Jimmy leaves in Baltimore because he was a Baltimore cop. If yep. you remember when we entered the story, um, there was some stuff in Baltimore. He probably could have helped too if he had stayed there, um, but he wasn't related. So it wouldn't have been a family story. Um, and it's inspired a lot by, I love a book by William Peter Blatty, uh, the late William Peter Blatty called Legion. Uh, it was one of, it was a sequel to the Exorcist, uh, and it was about demons and demonic possession, of course. And uh, it, it's sort of in that realm. I can't say, say too much about it, but um, again, it's one of those things is sort of a metaphor for violence and pain and trauma and that type of thing. Um, that's through Image, and uh, we have a sci-fi miniseries, Jason and I, that are also coming. That's also coming through Image, and. Um, Elysium Gardens, the book that's uh, the werewolf book that's in the back of the Philadelphia story, will continue as well uh, into the third arc. Um, nice. As far as Zombie Love Studios, I'm looking to the board again. Um, <laughs> there's a Crownsville that is based on a black mental asylum that's been closed for a decade or so. It's a real place that was on the outskirts of my hometown, one of the first black mental asylums where they did experiments on patients and a lot of seedy stuff. And um, think The Shining. Um, yeah. Think it's a ghost story set in uh, a mental asylum. Um, there's another story uh, called Florence and Normandy, uh, another alien uh, UFO type sci-fi uh, spectacle that's written by myself and uh, well, the story's by myself in the rapper exhibit. Um, oh, no kidding. Yeah. Even though he probably would prefer me to say entrepreneur. So I'm going to say entrepreneur, <laughs> actor, musician exhibit. Uh, we came up with the story together and I'm writing a script. And um, that's another one that's coming from, uh, from uh, zombie love studios. And then there's a character, I probably shouldn't say it, but I'm in that mood today. I'm a little feisty today. So, Love it. Uh, Blackula, I'm adapting Blackula uh, as well. That's the flagship book that's going to come out of Zombie Love Studios as well. So those are the three books that are slated to come out at the end of 2021. Um, COVID has wreaked havoc yeah. with uh, gotcha. the ability to be timely, both with press and with... Um, and with just keeping schedules, uh, it's all over the place. But I'm doing everything I can to get those books out. And they won't be floppies. They'll be um, softcover and hardcover trades. Okay. Um, so that you get the whole thing in one shot. Um, and um, so there's that. What inspired it was there were stories. When you go through the process of going to publishers and pitching your stories, Um I've always, as much as I appreciate, Image has been great. Everybody's been great so far. I don't say that just to say it. But there were some stories that I just kind of selfishly wanted to tell the way that I wanted to tell them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and the best way to do that is to self-publish. And since I sort of had um, some support um, with my employers as to uh, my deal with being able to do other stuff, you know, I wanted to take a crack at creating my own little horror supernatural mystery universe um that was the motivation okay and, and i'll tell you what you, when you talk you brought up um 
you brought up Elysium Garden too, at uh, Gardens, excuse me. Those mm -hmm. were the werewolves in that thing. <laughs> Holy shit! I've never seen like with like the ears so freaking big. And I was like, as I was reading, it's like this is a nice little touch. Like yeah. werewolves, mm -hmm. they just you know they have everybody has their own spin on it. But that yeah. was just a little difference that I haven't seen anything else that that Jason did that I thought was uh, very well done. High five to Jason and uh, Bill Sinkevitz who who came in on uh, uh, issue six of it to uh, lend his incredible talents to it but um that came from jason and i both love the howling that's um like our favorite werewolf story i love the lon chaney one back in the day uh where he looked like a little wolf like he looked like a man with like wolf mm. hair but something about those ears and that transformation that came from the howling sort of set with we both talked about it and i remember jason saying one night um I want to do something with the ears. You cool with that? Uh, go ahead. Whatever. You've earned the right to do whatever you feel. And um, so that's where you get those ears and the points and the thing. They almost feel like knives in a way. They feel dangerous too. The ears feel yeah. dangerous. Yeah, so, they do. They're 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 freaking vicious, and that that's been a real nice addition uh, to Philadelphia. Not that it needed it, but I, yeah, I was. Thanks. Yeah, I've, I'm glad to see that we're going to keep going with that moving forward. Um, now you're writing so much stuff right now. You got the show stuff you're working on too. Joe and I always in our interviews asking people, uh, "What are you reading?" And did you even have time to be reading stuff? I'm reading. I just started Stephen King's Later. Um, that just dropped today. Um, I pride myself on being one of his constant readers. Um, and, you know, I fell in love with him as a kid. And then I love was solidified. I was a Michael Clark Duncan stand in on the movie, the green mob. And um, really because I wanted to meet Stephen King. That was the biggest, that was <laughs> nothing against anything. I love Frank Darabont as well, but um, mm -hmm. Stephen King was the big prize for me. And, Got an opportunity to meet him. There's a big picture of me and him on my uh, in my uh, living room uh, over the fireplace. And um, he was so nice and he was so gracious. And we talked writing. And um, so forever, whenever there's a Stephen King book, when any anytime anyone asks me what I'm reading, it's typically a Stephen King book or a no Joe way. Hill book, which is sort of connected or Owen King book, or Tabitha King book, yeah. or any of the King family. If the dog uh, releases a book, I'll probably read that too. <laughs> so those are my first go-tos uh, in reading. No yeah, kidding. Joe Hill's uh, his comics have been great. I, I, I his, yeah, uh, Joe's been uh, great. Joe's been supportive too. So yeah, yeah. Basketball Heads was great. That was another one I, I did on the show for for Dorktober, and I've read some of his novels. I love the Fireman. So uh, Fireman, Lock and Key, um, yeah. you know, bunch of stuff. Nosferatu, a uh, yep. bunch of stuff. Well, Rodney, we really appreciate you setting aside some time to talk with Joe and I this week, and uh, we're looking forward to you know talking more about Philadelphia down the line and catching everything else you're writing. So hopefully we can catch up with you again at some point, but thank you. Only on one condition, and is that you keep that Philadelphia banner up forever. And you got it. It's not going anywhere. People watching, you know, if you say, oh, shit, Rodney's looking, we got to put it back up. I, I'm not, I won't move it. To make sure <laughs> that you keep it up. But yeah, huh? guys, great talking to you guys too. Same here, Rodney. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Talk soon.